We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 6 and chapter 7 tonight as we work our way through that book. I'm not going to read all of chapter 7, uh, but we shall kind of skim our way through that. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 this evening, the book of Nehemiah, and let's go ahead and pray before we open God's Word tonight. Our Father, we thank you for your Word we do pray that you would bless it to our hearing, to our reading this evening. We pray that you would do a mighty work in our midst. We would know that we have heard your voice on high. Would you teach us your truth? Stir in us wisdom that can only come from above. And seal us unto yourselves. We do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 6, start there in verse 1. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methabel, who was confined to his own home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. So they are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in, the fifth, in 52 days. 
And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Uh, Nehemiah is then going to go through and he's going to record each of the families that are there in the land. He ends there with the Levites, you'll see in verse 43. And then the sons of Solomon's servants in verse 57 and following. Then the temple servants in verse 60 and following. And then verse 61 and following. He is looking at some of these sons of some of the leading families. And then we get to verse 66. And the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants. And of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. In 1861, there were two companies that secured contracts with the federal government, where the federal government was going to pay them uh, to do what many thought was an impossible task, uh, at the very least a, manu a monumental task, to create a transcontinental railroad across the United States. The one company, the Central Pacific Railroad, began in Sacramento, and the other, the Union Pacific Railroad, began on the border between Iowa and Nebraska. 
And because of the great conflict the American Civil War was waging, it took them a few years before they could actually start. But they began finally in 1865 with the close of the war, and uh, the project began in May of that year. On May 10th in 1869, uh, at a place called Promissory Point, the two lines finally met one another, and they drove in the the last uh, nail into uh, what were the rails that went uh, now all the way from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. This was a, a monumental task and absolutely changed the landscape of America. Before this, if you wanted to go from the East Coast to the West Coast, it would take you six months. It now would take you two weeks. What would have cost before $1,500 to go from the East Coast to the West Coast? At that time, $1,500. Now it costs $110. It brought together a nation that had just been divided by war, had brought them together, had given them something to look at and something to hope for, and something that brought them together to celebrate. And then as that railroad opened up from the East Coast to the West Coast, it really opened up the whole interior of the United States and little towns popped up all along those rail lines and all of what we consider the West today was developed as a result. It was an absolutely monumental achievement that transformed the country. We have a similar event here in Nehemiah. There's been conflict and there has been struggle and there has been a lack of hope and there has been discouragement and there has been division that has consumed the people of God as we've seen in the previous chapters. There's a lack of outlook, there's a lack of vision, there is a lack of hope. And Nehemiah launches into this rebuilding program, this monumental task of reconstructing the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And it's no smaller task than creating a transcontinental railroad. And it had a very similar effect. It required the same kind of hard labor. It required the same kind of planning. It required the same kind of fortitude. It required the same kind of leadership. It required the same kind of courage. And we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and Nehemiah says this. I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it. It's, it's astounding. It's a monumental achievement. The war that Nehemiah had embarked upon, that he would fight for Jerusalem, this war that required him to go to the, the great Persian king Artaxerxes and, and ask, which was no small thing. And then to make all the plans and to secure all the resources and to unite the people that were already in the land because there was already all kinds of division among them. Then to fend off all the adversaries that were trying to stop this from happening. To keep the people encouraged as they were busy about the work, to engage in it. And he gets to this point. And he says, it's finished. It's all done tells us in verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. It had been 52 days of hard, laborious work, but it started way before that. 
we go back and you'll remember that when he went to King Artaxerxes, it was in the month of Nisan, which would have been somewhere between mid-March and mid-April. And here we're told that the wall was finished in the month of Elul, which was in October. So the entire project took about six months. It was six months of planning and securing and uniting and fending off adversaries. And now it's accomplished. It's done. There's no breach left in the wall. The war for the security of Jerusalem was won. The war was won. But did you notice that the fight wasn't over? Their enemies haven't given up. He tells us in verse 1 that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies did not cease their attacks. They knew it was complete. They knew that the wall was done. They, they heard it, Nehemiah says there. And one would think that they would stop knowing that their attempt to defeat the people of God from accomplishing the work of God, that, that it didn't happen, that they lost. But they don't. They just renew their attacks. And that is always the way of enemies. They know the war is lost, they continue to fight. This is one of the great realities of the Christian life. The war is won. And yet Satan and demons know that they have lost. They know they lost at the cross. They know that they lost at the empty tomb. They know that Jesus reigns. This isn't lost on them. There's that fascinating account in the Gospels when Jesus arrives there and there's that man that is filled with a legion of demons. And that demoniac comes to him and he says to Jesus, the legion of demons say, what do you have to do with us, son of the most high God? They know who he is. And they're, they're fearful. And they, they say to Jesus, they say, please don't torment me. Don't torment us. They know he has all authority. They know he has all power. If they knew it then, they surely know it now. And no less. But they don't cease attacking. And so the Christian, like Nehemiah, must fight on. As Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith, we're told. And I think we can take some pointers here from Nehemiah and how we are to fight as he is engaged in this spiritual warfare with enemies of God's people and enemies of God, Nehemiah, first of all, he remains vigilant. Symbolit and Geshem, they come with a new tactic. They propose that they have a kind of summit. Let's have a, a meeting. They say, let's meet in the plains of Ono. That is about 27 miles north of Jerusalem. They say, look, this is, this is a, a place that is neutral and we can meet there together. You've accomplished your woes. We tried to oppose you. It didn't work. So now let's, let's come together and let's talk about how we live this out now that you are in Jerusalem and you are surrounded by your woes. And Nehemiah uh, is wise to what they are up to. He is aware that one of two things must be happening here. They're seeking to get him out there in the middle of nowhere so they can kill him. Or they want to get him out there in the middle of nowhere with known enemies so that the people that are left in Jerusalem won't trust him any longer. He remains vigilant like all the people of God must do in their fight. 
His enemies, they continue. They send a message to Nehemiah four times. They're absolutely persistent and insistent that he meet with them. And when that fails, they try yet again. But this time they send an open letter from Sanballat. The attack is different yet again. Their previous attempts of affecting the work, that they've ended, they've crashed, they have failed. And so they use an old strategy, a strategy that is used often. They just attack the leader. Sambalat sends a, an open letter, an open letter like you know, Paul would have sent to the church of Philippi or the letter that he sent to the church of Ephesus. It was an open letter. It's a letter that would have been read many different places before it arrived at its location. And so here, Sambalat has written an open letter, a letter that all kinds of people have read before Nehemiah actually has it in his hands. And what is that letter? It's a letter of attack. It's a, a letter of gossip. And during the American Revolution, uh, the British thought that the Americans didn't fight fair. And one of the reasons was because American continental soldiers and uh, Minutemen would often aim at the officers in the British ranks. Because they knew that if you took down a British officer, that the rank-and-file soldier would have no clue what to do. They, they would be lost. They would be a mess. They would get out of formation. and They wouldn't know whether to retreat or whether to charge. It's an old tactic. It's a tactic that is used time and time again. And so it should be no surprise that this is often how our adversary attacks. Because if he can make a spiritual leader fall, he knows it has a cascading effect. It doesn't just affect him. It just doesn't affect his family. It doesn't just affect the people around him. It can affect myriads upon myriads of people. And so spiritual leaders are often under attack. And few know that, but those who have served in that capacity. We, we often warn men that are coming on the session here as elders. We will say, let other elders tell them, look, there's going to be Probably a real season of trial for you. It just comes with the territory. Spiritual warfare tends to erupt. Strategy is not foreign to those who are students of leadership. Symbolic spreads gossip that Nehemiah is doing all of this out of self-interest and He's actually filled with pride and that he wants to become king of the Jews. And that is almost always the attack upon leaders. They're self-interested. They're filled with pride. And sometimes that's the case and it's a right accusation, but, but often it's the gossip that is spread because it's effective. It works. No one wants to follow a spiritual leader that is filled with pride and that is self-consumed. And so it may not take full effect among the people. It may just create enough doubt in people's mind that it just creates just enough distance between their leader and them that the work is no longer effective, that it no longer has the same energy, no longer has the same movement. It's an old strategy. So we are to be ready. We are to be vigilant. The attacks will come. Part of that is, is we should be circumspect about entertaining reports about leaders. 
There's a reason that Paul writes to Timothy saying, do not entertain an accusation against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The attack of Sanballat here is even more onerous than this. He is writing this open letter because he wants King Artaxerxes to also know of these accusations against Nehemiah. He's clever. He wants this gossip, this information to get out and get back to King Artaxerxes. So that King Artaxerxes in Persia will look down at Jerusalem and say, Ah, that Nehemiah, I can no longer trust him. It is it's gossip, it's false, but it's just meant to create a little bit of unsettledness and even fear. There's that old line that gossip is something that you have to tell others quickly before it's proven to be false as it is. And so it is here. The king, though, would consider this rebellion, and, and the purpose, as Nehemiah tells us, was to cause fear in him and fear in the people. But Nehemiah is not willing to bite on that strategy either of his adversaries. And yet they still won't give up. They've tried time and time again to shut him down and to stop his ministry from going forward, but he won't give up there either. So they hire a false prophet, Shemaiah, and he invites Nehemiah to meet with him in the temple in the holy place because he says, look, there are men that are going to kill you. They're going to kill you this night. And you can almost hear in Nehemiah's mind, this is the greatest of all of these temptations because it's not only just fear of his reputation now, but fear of his, his person. You're going to be murdered. And what good would that be for the people of Jerusalem if I was murdered? And yet, as Nehemiah says, he doesn't give in to that either. The tactic is to cause fear. First, they tried through the open letter to cause Nehemiah to to meet out of fear for his reputation, and now they're attempting to create fear for his bodily safety. He says that in verse 13, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Fear is a great weapon. It is one of the greatest weapons that is used in the hands of our adversaries. Whether it's spiritual or physical, whether it's fear of failure or fear of a ruined reputation or fear of man or whether it's fear of accusations or fear of gossip or fear for our lives. Fear is the great immobilizer of God's people and it is often the cause for unfaithfulness. But not for Nehemiah. Why? Because he remains vigilant. Remains vigilant. He, he knows these are attacks. And because he knows they are attacks, and because he knows that this is what they are using to discourage him, he remains faithful. Remain vigilant, remain faithful. Fear can make us lose our heads and do things that we would never think about doing otherwise. Think about Abram in the Old Testament, and out of fear he lies about his wife Sarah. Or you think about Saul in the Old Testament, out of fear he goes and offers sacrifices. Or you think about Peter, out of fear he denies the Lord Jesus three times, when before that he said, there is no way I would deny you. 
And Nehemiah knows he's not willing to give in to this fear. He knows that by going into this temple, he's actually going to violate the will and the law of God. He would dishonor God. The threat is real. But the solution that's given to him is, is a false solution. In the Old Testament, it was only a priest that was able to go into that holy place. And here is this prophet saying, you need to come in here with me. You need to come in here with me into this holy place because there you'll be safe before the altar of God. And Nehemiah could have rationalized it, surely, out of fear. Ah, the Lord would want me to preserve my life. I lead all of these people. The Lord would want me to try and save myself if I can. But he doesn't. He will not violate the law of God out of fear. And he refuses. He remains faithful. And friends, it is not the absence of fear, but remaining faithful in the midst of fear that proves our character more than anything else. The bravest of leaders the greatest spiritual leaders I know are people that struggle with fear. But what's the difference? They allow their faithfulness to overshadow fear rather than fear to overshadow their faithfulness. And they let faithfulness lead the way. There's a Civil War general that I think about this a lot. Uh, famous quote, he said, do not take counsel from your fears. Fear is an awful advisor. An awful advisor. It says one of the greatest ways to combat fear is just to pursue faithfulness in the moment. I've counseled uh, a lot of pastors over the years, especially over the past probably 10 or so years, different men that have called or that have met with that have uh, faced accusations, have faced gossip, their character is being maligned, maybe once, maybe by a myriad of people, there is division, they are, feel like their reputation is in jeopardy, they feel like their livelihood is in jeopardy, and so their person is in jeopardy. And my counsel it's one of the things I almost always say is, brother, just seek to be faithful today. Just seek to be faithful today. And then you can go to bed with a clean conscience today. Just seek to be faithful today. You, you can't control the attacks that come. You can't control the gossip that circulates. You can't control the opposition. You can't control those things. But what you can control is your faithfulness. Be faithful today. And then you can go to bed with a clean conscience and you can actually get a good night's rest. And leave your reputation to God and leave your life to God and leave your ministry to God. This is actually what Nehemiah does. He prays there in chapter 6. He says, but, oh, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Oh God, I'll leave this in God's hands. 
And now, God, just help me to be faithful in the work that I'm supposed to be doing. Strengthen my hands to do the work that is before me. Seeking to be faithful today and maintaining a clean conscience today can quiet an awful lot of fear. The war was won, but the fight continues, so be vigilant and faithful. But all of this is to an end, and that's our final point. Maintain what ultimately matters. It is easy to get caught up in the fears, and it's easy to get caught up in the personal attacks, and it's easy to get caught up in the battles here and there and lose track of what this is all about. And I think this is why the two sections that follow chapter 6 here are here. I think Nehemiah is bringing this point out. What matters is not the fight or the lack of fight. It's not our reputation being tacked or being protected. What ultimately matters are people and worship. That's what he ends this with, people and worship, before he transitions to the next section of the book. All this kingdom service, all this enduring attacks only matters as far as it blesses people and encourages worship. That's why chapter 7, I think, follows chapter 6. He, he just lists all the people in a kind of census by families. It's a really important list. It's also included in Ezra 2, and it's also included in the apocryphal book of, of Esdras. All of this effort, all of this leading, all of this doing was to serve the people, was to serve God's people. Amidst all of our busyness in this fight, in this fight of life, we can't forget that what it's about is people. It's people that matter. All the programs and all the meetings and all the ministries mean nothing if they aren't serving the people. Nehemiah's wall meant nothing except for, it how, for how it served the people. And this often gets lost. It is subtle, but all of a sudden the work we do in the church becomes about the work itself. We promote this ministry because we want to see this ministry become a success. We obsess over numbers and our focus fixes upon meeting the budget and maintaining the institution, observable successes. But those things only matter if they serve the people. Building programs are especially tempting, I think, in this way. It's an odd way that our adversary often attacks through successes. Maybe none more so than building campaign. I know a pastor who led his church through an absolutely ambitious capital campaign, one of the most ambitious I have ever seen, at least in my circles. He wanted to build uh, really an unbelievable church building that sat on top of a hill overlooking the city, and he wanted it to be a church that would stand for centuries upon that hill overlooking the city. And it is an absolutely unbelievable building. It rivals any of the cathedrals in Europe. It's astounding. But by all accounts, in the midst of it, the right focus was lost. 
the building campaign became all-consuming and people and money became a means to serving the vision of the building instead of the building serving the people. And that church today is in shambles. But it still sits on that hill. But it's emptied of people. Nehemiah could have lost sight of what mattered, but he didn't. The wall only mattered because the people mattered. The wall only mattered because these were God's people that were behind the wall. Whatever we do for the kingdom only matters if it benefits God's people. Because people are the only thing in this world that lasts. And so we invest in people. That's the business we're in. We invest in people. We need programs. We need buildings. We need budgets. But they are all to serve people and not the other way around. Because people live for all of eternity. Walls won't. And that leads to the second focus. We aren't just concerned with people generally, but with seeing them freed up to worship. And that is what ultimately matters. The walls were rebuilt in Jerusalem to provide safety and security for the people, not as an end in itself, but so they might worship the living and true God. This was not a social program. This was a worship program. And so it is always to be what the people of God are about. is freeing up people to worship. Encouraging worship, bringing others along with us in worship. And that's what Nehemiah is reminding us, readers, at the close of these two chapters. He ends with noting what was given to the treasury for worship. He notes the division of the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. Why? Because this is why they existed, to worship. This is why his leadership mattered, to facilitate worship. This is why the walls were rebuilt to encourage worship. In fact, it's why Jerusalem is there for worship. The walls of the city existed for worship. The nation of Israel exists for worship. Nehemiah himself exists for worship. And so it is true of Universal Reformed Church. And so it is true of you. We exist for worship. And it is all aimed at that. This is what ultimately matters. It's us giving glory to the God who created us. Each in our place, each in our position. As much as we are able. And so we continue to fight this good fight. The war has been secured so that we can worship for all of eternity. We seek to be vigilant and we seek to be faithful in the midst of the battle as it continues to wage and rage. As we worship alongside others and encouraging others to join us. This was Nehemiah's great building plan and what he accomplished. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have created us to be worshipers. We're thankful that the war is won so that we are freed to worship you on earth and forevermore in heaven. Help us to continue to fight the good fight, to be vigilant against our adversaries, to be on guard, and to remain faithful. We pray that you would add to the numbers of the remnant that are on earth, that there might be more worshipers of you, that you might receive more glory, each in our place, each in our station. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.